Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun informal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. When I first started dating Stephen, we took a road trip. And I should have had some indication of how this was going to go, but in the car, we would go for really long periods of time in complete silence. And during that time, when we were first dating, I would fill in the silence with my mind thinking, what's wrong? Is he in a bad mood? Is he mad about something? There was some reason, negative reason for the silence because in my previous relationship, we wouldn't go 30 seconds in the car with silence unless we were mad at each other. And it took a really long time for me to get used to the fact that he has an extreme comfort with silence. Now, when we're in the car and we have hands-free, I notice he'll call his brother or his brother will call him or he'll call his mother and it will go something like this. Oh, so how's it going? Oh, it's going well. What are you doing? Well, you know, such and such and such and such. And there'll be this long period of silence. I mean, even that for the podcast was just like so weird and uncomfortable. And I'll sit there in the car just thinking, what is wrong with you people? And then I have to realize that different people engage with silence differently. And in many ways, I've learned the power of silence through my relationship with Stephen. I never really valued it. And that leads me to the curiosity bite. Are you ready? I'm so hungry. So hungry. When is, <laughs> when is silence disagreement, agreement, and when is it just powerful? Okay. So let's think. Disagreement, I get. Agreement, I sort of get. And powerful. What do you mean by using silence as a powerful tool? I mean, would that be like negotiation? Well, think of, I'm going to give you a hint. In the 6th century, Lao Tzu, the Chinese philosopher, made a statement, and I'm sure it was in English just like this, silence is a source of great strength. So I'm going to throw it back to you. What did Lao Tzu mean? I'm being silenced. <laughs> Perhaps because... You're very powerful. I'm feeling powerful because I am using silence to think before I speak, Mm -hmm. and I think that might be a powerful and very useful tool. I agree. I also think it shows the person that is experiencing the silence on the other end that you are either valuing what they say or you, or if they're skeptical, they may, that you may have something that you're holding back from them. It may arouse their, cooking up, scheming, it may arouse their curiosity. I remember one of my favorite, it's in, and it's in, uh, arousing the vicarious sales techniques that I learned from old Saul and the old the old Jewish guy in the auction business. 
when say I, it better than that. Say it better than that. When in negotiation, it's best to breathe through your nose. That is true. Shut the F up. Yeah, but I like the the breathe through your nose because it, again, it arouses curiosity. You're like, wait, breathe through your nose. What does that mean? And then you have to kind of go through the action and that implants the lesson more than STFU. Right, right. So, okay. So we've got when you use silence in disagreement, that's pretty easy because you use it, you might not want to engage in controversy or you don't want to have the confrontation. So you just disagree and you just don't want to engage in that. So you shut up. In agreement, I think when there's there's back to back and back to back and you finally come to some sort of an agreement, then you can just be like silent. You don't need to go any further with the conversation. That I get. Using it in power, kind of what you were saying where the other person will feel like you're giving them the time of day to stop and pause. And that adds some power to what you're saying. It adds some power with your relationship. So yeah, I think those three examples. What about you? What do you think? I don't know. I'm having a trouble with agreement because, well, let me ask a clarifying question. Okay. As we're going through today's bite, are we going to agree that silence is only verbal or auditory? Because if we start talking about silence with nonverbal communication, that complicates things because I think, I, I don't know. Well, I'll speak for myself, but I can also speak for you. No, you can't. <laughs> yes, I can. And when I say this, you'll have to agree that the times that we would be silent, both verbally and nonverbally, would take a concerted effort. It wouldn't be any way, shape, or form a default because we could easily be silent, but our face, our faces would reveal. The only way that we could do that is if we were asleep. Ah, all right. Now, sleep is a different thing because what about talking in your sleep? You got me talking in your sleep. Sleep talking is considered a sleep disorder, somniloquy, and it can occur in any stage of sleep. But the funny thing about talking in your sleep is that sleep scientists say that you don't know what you're saying when you're talking in your sleep. But how do they know that? If I'm talking in my sleep, which I don't think I do very often because I haven't gotten a lot of feedback that I do that, I don't know if I'm actually trying to communicate something. And I think it's just nonsense. But we don't know because we could be having a just as meaningful conversation in a different zone. But let's, let's, are we going to talk about sleep, uh, silence as just verbal or are we going to extend it as through the bite to include nonverbal? If we did nonverbal, I think it would be a much bigger conversation than just verbal. Harder challenge because I don't know that you and I have, are very successful. Now, I could see thinking that I was doing nonverbal communication, but someone that was trained to, to see tiny little tells would probably pick up on the fact that I wasn't being silent nonverbally. So we're going to just stick with verbal silence for this particular bite. Don't you I agree? Think, I think that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Okay. Now, the thing that I found really interesting was the cultural differences. And again, and a caveat, any cultural differences are on aggregate. So the differences between two people could be completely 
irrelevant to the culture that they're in. But on aggregate, Asians tend to be more comfortable with longer periods of silence, like a minute or two of silence. Can you imagine where Canadians and Americans are generally uncomfortable with more than a second of silence in conversation? And Latin Ameri- Latin Americans and Italians are even less comfortable with silence to the point where they talk over each other. I might feel like maybe as an American Jew, I fall into that category as well. I think that's why it's difficult for us to do this Zoom <laughs> recordings because we have such a hard time not speaking over each other and it just doesn't work this way. <laughs> I will tell you from an editing standpoint, the WAV files, it's much easier to edit when we're not in the same room because anytime, the only challenge is that sometimes it cuts out, but the interesting thing is as the sound wave files, if I talk over you, I could just cut myself out and sometimes you're, I can get a clearer on you. It's, I've noticed myself, oh girl, you better stop talking over Schmenzers because I <laughs> can just cut myself out. Asian and Nordic countries have these listening cultures where silence denotes careful thought. And that's kind of what you were saying about when is silence powerful. They think that pauses in a conversation keep the interchange calm and in some cases can allow people to save face. And in those cultures, what is not said can be as, as important as what is said. Then there are the cultures that are hierarchical where you have to be very careful because whoever's speaking, they often value as the most senior or oldest person in the room. And there's an expectation of silence for people down the hierarchical chain. And I know that in negotiations, sometimes with different cultures, uh, Americans have come out of negotiations with Jap- with J- Japanese business people thinking that they've had agreement when they had no agreement at all, be- just because they thought that silence was, oh, you're not refuting our proposal, so you must be agreeing with it. And then they come home or come back from the negotiations to realize, uh, no, home slice, that's not what it meant. I wonder what it means if you're silent during a legal proceeding or some type of business agreement, like a, a contract or something like that. I wonder how that would work. Well, there, I know that in contract law, certain areas require a written contract, but silence can be considered uh, consent if the silent person is bound in good faith to explain. Like, um, for example, let's say that uh, I'm delivering lamb to your restaurant and your restaurant is known for some fancy lamb dish and I've been delivering it and we've negotiated on a price and I've been delivering it for years. And then I send you an email or I leave you a voicemail and I tell you that my supplier or whatever, these Mary didn't have so many little lambs and so I can't deliver them at the same price and so I'm doubling my price. And you don't say anything, you don't respond and I just continue to deliver them that could be seen as a contract, a silent contract, because there was kind of an unwritten agreement. We had this. So there's, there's exceptions to every rule. And you can have a contract in a lot of areas through silence, but then you could also, it could be voidable. So one could say, no, I didn't agree to that. Yes, you did. When I proposed that, you didn't say anything. Yes, I did say something. I mean, it's, you know, so you could, then it becomes a he said, she said type of situation. But there, there is interesting law. No assent will be inferred from someone's silence, usually unless you know your rights and know what you're doing. So if you are silent trying to trick me into thinking that you agree, 
that's when you don't, or your silence and your silence has to be voluntary. So if you were like, had a muzzle over you and, you know, the mafia was holding a gun to your head and those things have to be in place. You have to have voluntary silence and then you also have to know what you're doing. And I'm sure different countries have different, different agreements. One of the things about diversity that I find interesting is when I ask the question of people who do diversity uh, consultation and programs is, is there a downside to diversity? And I usually get a pretty aggressive skepticism about my motivations when I'm really asking out of curiosity. But there is something with silence and diversity, which is in more homogenous groups, silence is safer because there is a common life. And this could apply in all kinds of situations, cultural, cultural homogeny, ethnic homogeny, gender homogeny. When you've got a group of people who kind of know each other and know each other's culture, more can be assumed without being said. But in more of a diverse culture, silence can be more dangerous because people might be making assumptions from their own diverse points of view. And so it's more important to be able to tease those things out. And that kind of hints at the, one of the positives of diversity is just understanding all of the different ways if you're creating products that these products could be perceived or services these these services could be innovation clearly favors diversity but there are some downsides you have to be able to understand and communicate in a way that makes everything clear whereas in you know if it's just you and you i mean how many times have you and i been at a party and we look over at each other with you know barely a flicker just a little flicker and we know exactly what we're thinking constantly yeah, and that extends to homogenous groups more than more than diverse groups. So there is something right. to be said with that. You want to hear the list? I do. Wait. Yes. Ask, ask me again. Ask me again. Do you want to hear my list? <gasps> I'm going to take that as an agreement. That uh, silence. That is a powerful agreement. Yes, that would be. That is correct, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, these are uh, sometimes we use silence, and I think it's I think sometimes you use silence more for these particular situations, and I use silence more in certain situations. It, it's kind of it'd be a fun get to know you game or a drinking game or something like that. So we're gonna do that right now. Do I have to get some tequila, or just pretend? Well, <laughs> just pretend. I think it's a little early, but you know I won't judge you. <laughs> okay well if it's early as long as it's a bloody mary or a mimosa that should be fine right okay, okay. all right so after <laughs> between the two of us who do you think uses uh silence because they just didn't hear the person i'm gonna say you because sometimes you're hmm. not hearing and you would just because i'm older and have bad ears yeah, well, you have bad ears in comparison to mine, and I have bad eyes in comparison to you. I didn't know I had bad ears. Well, me neither. I, I mean, I knew, I knew I had bad ear lobes because I've got that ripped <laughs> earring thing, but I didn't think it extended to the quality of my hearing, but maybe it did. I, think, right. I, th I do think that between the two of us, you would be silent because you didn't hear more than I would be silent because okay. I didn't hear. All right. I'll take it. Who do you think would use silence because they didn't know what to say? You. <laughs> That's true. And it's not necessarily because I don't know what to say. I think it's because I 
I second guess everything I say. Well, that's different. And, that's because you're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Oh, yeah, that's also in here. I mean, I think I always know that I have something to say, but I, I'm always worried that it's, yeah, I guess it's more that I'm worried I'm going to say the wrong thing. That's when I think that the value of curiosity comes in because, first of all, it's not important to always have to say something. You're right. And it's, I think, the value of silence. I could learn from being silent much more. I mean, there are many times I've gone to places and I thought, mm, I probably did, could have used my fair share of silence in that exchange or that evening or that uh, party or whatever. And then I just go back and think, okay, was I doing more? questioning than trying to answer or pontificate or whatever, which can happen, particularly when people have strong opinions, maybe with that I'm interested in learning more, or I initially disagree. But in terms of not knowing what to say, I feel that I can always fall back on just switching my brain into curiosity mode. If I'm, if I'm talking to a bunch of quantum physicists, or I'm talking to a bunch of engineers, or I'm talking to a bunch of you know, scientists or something far afield from my circle of competency, I usually know a good question to ask. And that can be perceived as knowing what to say. Whereas you often say to me, how did you know to ask that question? You know, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not because I necessarily know what to say, but I usually know what to ask. Yeah. I guess that qualifies. I always think of the questions, but I don't think that they would be welcome. <laughs> nah. That's your depression. That's your depression showing its devious head. Maybe. That shows its head quite a bit. In a work situation, I talk a lot and don't use silence. And I'm not as afraid to say things because I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Because I do like to, I'm a verbal, I, I work things out verbally. Mm. And so a lot of times I'm not silent because I am working things out. So I'll say the wrong thing all the time, but it's because I'm trying to work it out. And I, do you think that there's value in explaining that to people up front? For example, not just one time so that they understand this is a, because I, I agree, I'm the same way. I work things out a lot verbally, which is why I talk to myself a lot. I mean, not to digress, but I'll never forget when I was, uh, an assistant buyer and we're hoping to get promoted to buyer for made department stores. And I would go in every morning before the store opened and I would be standing in the dark on the floor. And I knew as the trucks were coming in and unloading the merchandise, I was reorganizing the floor for the flow. So that different, so the whole thing looked good so that the different products flowed right and the different assortments were together. And I would be talking to myself, okay, put this here and put that there and put that. Oh no, Becky, that's stupid. Put this here. And I remember my boss's boss told my boss, I think something's wrong with Becky. Why? What is going on? I think she's losing it. I saw her talking the last three weeks. I've seen her on the floor talking to herself early in the morning. And she's like, oh my God, that is just Becky. That So I do the same thing, working things out through conversation, even sometimes challenging myself. Oh, that's not right. So many times. So I'm wondering if it would be beneficial for people like us who, and I think there's got to be a lot of people like us who work things out. They're not necessarily firm in their convictions. They're willing to change their minds, 
in public, if only they were given the opportunity to be understood as someone who works something out verbally. So before you, in a meeting, before if you were hashing over something, you said, now let me say this before I say anything, I am one of those people that like to work things out verbally. So I'm open to the fact that I haven't thought this through in its entirety, but these are my initial thoughts. Would that be better received than what I normally do, which is just blurt out my idea without kind of greasing the skids? Keeping in mind that people have different moral foundations, different cultures, different viewpoints. I don't know if it would help. Mm. Maybe in some cases, yes. In other cases, no. In an educational situation, I do better when I can verbalize. And in, a, in an education setting, that's not always the best thing because the teacher wants to get their thing, their lesson done, and I want to work it out verbally. And if I don't, and that's why when I was growing up, I wouldn't sit in the front of the class and, and I didn't do as well. And then as I got older and took, I took extra post-college, I took other, other things and I would always sit in the front and mm. I excelled because mm. I could have those conversations. I could engage verbally. Also, I do better when I teach somebody. I think that, oh, I think that's very common. I think that's super common. Yeah, because then you see the gaps in your knowledge. And that goes to Richard Feynman's theory of knowing. You have to be able to teach it to know. And probably have mentioned this before, but I don't think these things can ever be mentioned enough because I can never read them enough over and over to remind myself. But Richard Feynman's father was explaining they were bird watchers and Richard, Richard Feynman, Nobel Prize winning physicist back in the day. And I really recommend his book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. I'll put it in the show. Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. And his father would explain that, yes, you can identify all the different birds, Robin Redbreast, Cardinal, Chickapee, Chickadee, whatever. Boobalink. 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 But that is not knowing birds. That's naming. And a lot of people think that they can, by naming, and that's a lot of our education is here's what to think, name it. And that's why, you know, the focus, so much of the focus on what we do at Applied Curiosity Lab is shifting a little bit of time from what to think and allotting that to how to think. Mm -hmm. How to think, only when you really understand how to think can you effectively teach. So I do think there is something to be said for that. When you're afraid of saying the wrong thing, what is your greatest fear? That's sounding stupid. And what would be what would be the worst thing that could happen with that? My deepest fears are confirmed. Okay, we're going to do a little stoic experiment. If on this podcast you said something that you felt listening back wasn't how you wanted to present yourself, what would be the worst thing that could happen? The worst thing that could the happen. The worst, not one bad thing, but the worst thing. We're going to be play a little stoicism 101. What's the worst thing that could happen? I don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> if anybody suffers from depression, they would not know what the worst thing that could happen. Well, I will tell you that I don't think that the ability to articulate ideas clearly is necessarily a measure of intelligence. If all of a sudden we went from this podcast to a lesson where you were going to, we were both going to be taught how to do the most basic dance moves and follow along. And all you have to do is literally point your toe. I'm not talking put on the music and let's dance because we can cut a freaking rug, the two of us, and we do. But I'm talking about, it's not about articulating on a podcast. Someone up there teaching us both to do dance moves. 
and someone didn't know us and they're watching, they had to say, who's the dumb shit of this Twister sister duo? I think that it would be pretty clear that I would be standing with a very pointy, long hat on my head, the dunce cap. So I think it's context specific. That's what I'll have to say. (laughs) I'm not going to argue. I'm going to be silent. All right. What's next on your list? Who uses silence because they want to mislead? Uh, I don't. Neither of us. I don't think I use, I don't think I use it to, I don't think I try to mislead people. I might, I might let people guess, but I don't think that's an, that's the same as making, I mean, I think it's great to let people guess. I think I should let people guess more than open my mouth and remove all doubt. But, but I mean, I could definitely put, I should probably try that more, but I don't, I mean, I suppose if I was in a dangerous situation, Oh, have you ever used silence to mislead? I I would say that I don't mislead, but I would say that I have used it for leading, especially as a manager with my team. I would use silence because I knew where we wanted to go and I needed them to to find that answer for themselves, Ah. the art of discovery. So I would use my silence, not my uh, nonverbal silence, but my (laughs) verbal silence to allow them to. Meanwhile, your eyes were, your eyes and your lips were going to the side, going, go here, go here, your tongue pointing. (laughs) All right. So that's different than you want them to guess because you really want them to guess the right answer. I remember using the curiosity bites for a breakout session and people would pull the curiosity bite out and ask it and they would look to you for clarification. And the whole idea of the curiosity bite is that you read it and you interpret it in the way that you do. And you would use silence. You would not say anything. I remember this so well. You would use your silence because you wanted them to guess. It's fun to guess, but in a public forum, it can be scary to guess. When people have been trained that in public there is a right and wrong answer, that uncertainty can be very uncomfortable. And, you know, even if I explain, you know, we explain over and over again when we're doing our reverse Q&A with the curiosity bites, we explain there is no right answer. This is a thought experiment. Thought experiments have a really interesting history. People need to understand what a thought experiment is. So they're structured manifestations of our natural curiosity. They're not, they're not rumination, they're structure. So not just like, all right, what do you think about silence? That's like a rumination. You could think about silence and you could give your thoughts. But this is more of a structured manifestation of curiosity. And that structure makes people think that there's a right and wrong answer. And then they get super uncomfortable. Whereas if we just said, what do you think about silence? They could completely be okay with it because it's a rumination. Once you structure it, then it becomes uncomfortable for people. And we need to get used to, I mean, one of the things with the curiosity bites, and you and I've talked about this a lot, is that there are very few times and opportunities just for people to play with these thought experiments. And these curiosity bites are structured manifestations. They're, 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 that's what they're designed to do. So I think your point is right. I think that was, a, I mean, so clear. And that happens, you know, we see that all the time. They're like, well, wait, wait what, what, what's, the, what's the right answer? And I think with these podcasts, 
it could open up some really fun, instead of a book club, a podcast club, because we are giving them a little more than we would if they were in one of our workshops and they were doing this thought experiment. It would be fun to continue this conversation and continue this curiosity by after listening to one of these podcasts with other people. Right. I think it would be so fun if it caught on like that. Yeah, I agree. That would be a blast just to do. And now, you know, we could do it virtually where we could show up or not show up. They could start with that. We could show up. I'm glad you said what you said about you have a, a discomfort with looking like an idiot because that shows that you also understand the downside or the challenge that people might have in engaging with these curiosity bites in public anyway. I'm willing to lay myself down on the sword for all of those people out there that fear of sounding like an idiot. I'll do it first for you. Because if I hid away, and and I've been tempted, I've been tempted not to do this podcast because I would don't want to... C- lay myself out there and I'm afraid I am going to sound inarticulate. So I, but I'm forcing myself to continue to do it and let the chips fall where they may. I'm going to just do it and be proud of what the outcome is. I think I, I completely agree. What's, what's next on your list? Okay. One is the physical limitation, which is me, because I've had uh, vocal surgery and I've had to be silent for a month, which was so impossible. And I've had jaw surgery, so I couldn't open my mouth for almost two months, which was very uh, difficult. I don't know. What about you? Have you ever had a physical limitation where you've had to be silent? Well, the good news is... I had a ventriloquist doll from the Sears catalog when I was young. So I I am not meaning to brag, but I think I could probably just keep on talking as even without moving my mouth, as long as it was just locked a little bit. I mean, look at me. I was good. I could totally. I I can't, I know. I can't remember his name. Lester. Lester. Lester from the Sears catalog. I remember that. More seriously, and the final question on my list is, when were you silent when you were under threat? And I know that was me also. So you go first. I think I've told you this. I I'm don't not know. sure if I've told you this, but one time when I was in college, we had just purchased a new car, like a used old car. And I was driving back to college and it broke down on the side of the freeway. And there was, we didn't have cell phones back then or anything. So this man in a truck pulled over and offered to give me a ride down to college. And then I could, I, I, I honestly don't know what I was thinking at the time. And I cannot believe I did this, but I actually got in the car with this stranger and we're driving down the road and he's saying, you know, you really should have let someone know that you were doing this. And I said, well, how do you know I didn't? And then he was, you know, kept saying, well, how, you, wait, you know, how do you know that you didn't what? How do you know that I didn't let someone know that I had oh. gotten in the car with you or, and things like that? And, oh, you know, you really, this, this is a good lesson for you and stuff like that. And I could have panicked. I could have cried. I could have pleaded. All of a sudden, he pulls off the road. Uh-oh. He pulls, like, off an, an exit, pulls off the road. And I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, okay, I'm going to get raped. I'm going to get killed, whatever. But I just stayed quiet silent, calm. My mind was going a mile a minute, but I was quiet. And all of a sudden he gets back on the road, drops me off. 
and away and thank god but i was just completely silent i didn't freak out i didn't try to get out of the car i didn't do anything but for some reason my brain my body whatever it was just made me silent and i think the silence saved my life wow yeah i can't think off the top of my head a time that I was under threat and I was silent. I can think of times that I was under threat and I was not silent. (laughs) I mean, when I had a knife held to me, my throat at 15 years old, and I was like, get the fuck, oops, beep, get the beep. Oh, you know, just this snarky. But I think that was due to the fact that I had not developed my prefrontal cortex, which might've been very similar to why you got in the car with that man. Oh my God. Can't believe I did that. I mean, how, why did I do that? I, I guess I didn't think there was any other option. I did not have a phone. I, 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 I didn't know what I, I, I mean, there, kind of, there had to have been some other way to survive that. <laughs> better, better option than what I had, than what I did, but. Fantastic. Well, are you ready for the sort of fact? Sort of. <laughs> of course, it's my favorite part. It's my favorite part. This study did not come out of PU. (gasps) Say it isn't so. This was a study that came out a while ago. It was published in a prestigious journal. So it came out of PJ, uh, PJ. And one of the things that was most interesting about this particular study was that it was received with such silence. That became the incentive for uh, Concerto. Have you heard of 430? No. Okay, so 4.30 was this concerto. This journal study comes out. It receives no notoriety, just silence. And then this concerto comes out 4.30, where this guy gets in the front of the piano. He just clicks his timer. It's completely silent. So it's considered an art piece. And then it's argued whether it's actual music, because the music is just the sound in between. He's not conducting. He's just sitting there. He's, it's just... But there was a, an actual, sheet, there was sheet music, but it was silence. It had pauses in it. It had uh, rests. It had pauses, but it was just went like this. He took his timer, he clicked it, and then he would just sit silent at the piano. And then, then that timer would beep, beep, beep. And then the next one, he clicked. And that was the whole thing. Well, that inspired this study, which essentially said that this compilation of research from 10 years from all of these prestigious universities concluded. Thanks for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, in order to avoid missing curiosity-bitten conversations, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, For all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to ApplyCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.